It only takes a a few minutes browsing on the internet uh, to find some uh, enjoyable, uh, famous last words. Uh, Dylan Thomas, the poet, uh, expired having said, I've had 18 straight whiskies. I think that's the record. Amazingly, Winston Churchill who you wouldn't think this about, but he, his last words before he slipped into a coma were, I'm bored with it all. My all-time favorite, and I've known this one for a long time, I hang on to it as a great treasure, is uh, General John Sidgwick, uh, a general in the American Civil War, who died saying they couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. But these words we have in front of us this evening really are the last words of St. Paul, at least the last words recorded. He knows he's shortly going to die. And he may well have wondered, as he looked at the future, exactly what it was that Jesus had been up to. Jesus, you'll remember, when he leaves this earth, entrusts his mission to the Twelve. Twelve apostles, and they are joined in due course by Paul himself, the 13th, as Paul encounters the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road. Well, 12, 13, it's really not many to evangelize a world with. There's the headstrong twins, the former terrorist, the soft, the hard, even the former accountant. And yet Jesus entrusts the mission of God to such as these. And we wonder at such apparent weakness. I wonder if you've ever suffered the double blow. The book of the Acts sees uh, Paul at the end of that book under house arrest in Rome, but, uh, as he wrote to the church in Philippi, expecting release. And if we're to make sense of the geography of his travels, then we have to say that he was indeed released from Rome, and I guess that was a great joy to the church. And then he headed back out east, perhaps because he knew there were problems, because he had intended to go west. Certainly he found problems. Timothy, his uh, friend, He left to sort things out in Ephesus, in what we would call Turkey, where the church had gone downhill. In fact, everyone, he says, in Asia Minor, in uh, in Turkey, has deserted him, deserted his message. And then somewhere along the line, he is re-arrested and taken back to Rome. And I wonder how the church that had so rejoiced felt then. This time, no longer under house arrest, he's put in a proper jail, and he suffers cold and hunger and terrible loneliness. There's that double blow. Something terrible happens, but then there's rejoicing because it seems that there's a miracle, there's been an answer to prayer. But then only a short time later, it happens again. And we might recognize, too, what seems to have been for him the most dreadful burden in that prison. He knew he wasn't going to get out of it alive, or at least not out of captivity alive. 
And that question that beat for him was this one. What is going to happen to the gospel? When Jesus left, he left the gospel to be transmitted by 12 men, some of them slightly dodgy. But Paul would probably love to have had 12 men to leave the gospel to. Instead, what did he have? He had Timothy. Some of you will have grown up on tales of Hogwarts uh, with Harry Potter. I'm from an older generation, and I grew up on Molesworth. Molesworth must have been about uh, 10, and he had a particular disdain for his brother, Molesworth II, whom he described as a wet and a weed. Now, fix this in your mind, because it'll do for a characterization for the next few weeks. Poor Timothy was the wet and a weed among early Christian leaders. And Paul must have trembled as he sat in prison, realizing that this man, for whom he felt so much love and affection ever since he'd been converted by Paul's own ministry, this man was the hope of the gospel. Indeed, given the the role of the gospel in history, Timothy, Timothy was, humanly speaking, the hope of the world. With Paul in prison, with everyone having deserted him, the hope of the world hangs by a thread. And that thread is called Timothy. Young in years, frail in health, and shy in character. So it would not be a surprise to find that 2 Timothy is written in desperation, with Paul frantically attempting to kick some sense into Timothy, and leaving long lists of what must be done. But Paul does not concern himself primarily with these things. But in the verses we had this, this evening, he focuses to buttress Timothy's confidence by reminding him how he got there. Do you please turn to it? It's uh, on page 1195. And while you find it, let me just suggest we try to see things now from Timothy's own point of view. Now, I'm sketching the story using things that Paul uh, wrote, uh, scattered through his uh, writings. As we go through the letter, week by week, you'll hear most of them confirmed. But I hope you can just bear with me for a moment, just for the the sake of the narrative. Timothy is a man who lived in a place called Lystra in uh, Turkey, according to the book of the Acts. And he'd grown up in the Christian faith of his mother, and his grandmother. Perhaps some of you grew up in households where mom was a believer, but dad was not. Even more than today, in a a macho Mediterranean world, Timothy could have been portrayed as the mummy's boy, the man who followed his mom and not his dad. It's not an easy road for a son to walk. We don't know how old he is at this point, except he's not old enough to be old. When Paul calls him later on young, he could easily still have been in his 30s. We know he uh, didn't have good health, he had frequent stomach problems, and he was timid. And if Paul knew that Timothy was a wet and a weed, then we can be sure that Timothy was all too aware of it himself. This is a man who'd worked alongside St. Paul, but he'd, he'd found his way to faith through the family. 
He hadn't had a dramatic conversion on the way to Damascus. In leadership, how would he feel? He'd been asked to look after this church in Ephesus, but with him in charge, it turned out to be falling apart. And his mentor is in prison in Rome. How do you suppose he felt? He must have wondered in his more down moments whether it was even true. The whole thing looks like a mess, and it's hanging by a thread, and that thread is called Timothy. And Paul knows that, and Timothy knows that, and they must both be wondering what's going to happen next. And what happens next is this letter. It's a letter in which Paul is going to boost Timothy with an appeal that looks two ways. To a past of which Timothy can be certain, and a future of which Timothy can be confident. First, there's a past to be certain of. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle. This is who I am. This story, Timothy, has not gone away of how the will of God has already worked. Nothing will stand in what he here calls the will, the, the path of the will of God. Nothing will stand in, the pla- in front of the plan and purpose of such a God. I know, and you know, Timothy, because you've heard me on this, I know that moment when I was called to be an apostle. Then in verse 2, he says to Timothy, my dear son, Could it really be, Timothy, that the relationship that we've known that's been so special for both of us is just a lie, a nonsense? Timothy, just remember the sheer reality and the history of my love for you. You had a mother and a grandmother in the faith, but in the faith you did not have a father, and that's what I've been to you. Remember it. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did. Timothy, let me remind you, this is not a new and strange teaching. I know you've had to deal with a lot of that in Ephesus. But remember that what's going on is in fact a deep continuity with all that my people, the Jews, have known. Jesus Christ is not contrary to what I've known, what they've known, but rather he's the most complete fulfillment And that story of continuity that I'm telling you about, your family can tell you about that too. Consider your mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, Jewish women, who understood what Jesus meant to a Jew. And then in verse 4, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm sorry, uh, verse... Six, I'm sorry. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I laid my hands on you. That ancient form of blessing. Timothy, you're probably going through doubts, but let me ask, do you think that was for nothing? You remember, don't you, that in all the apostolic authority that came from that moment on the Damascus Road, I prayed for you. I laid hands on you, and I prayed that you would enter into the gift of God that's for you. 
There is a past to be certain of. But secondly, there's a future to be confident of, and the two are mixed together. Verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. What happened to me on that road, Timothy? It was a summons and a promise to enter into life. I can look around where I am in the gloom and all I can see is dank walls. All I can smell is filth. All I can hear is the sound of desperate men. Wherever I look, it looks like death. And yet I say to you that Jesus is life. I wouldn't change a day of what has been, and I know the glory, the life that awaits. It looks like death, but I know he called me according to the promise of life that's yet to be fulfilled. It lies in front of me. Secondly, verse 4, I long to see you. Before the day of that glory comes, I hope to be granted the chance to see you. I want you to be here with me, to know what I know. I want you to know what has been taken from me, yes, but I also want you to know what nothing can take away. Here, in this hole of a place, Joy is possible. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Joy is possible even there if the good news of Jesus is true. Then in verse 6, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Life may contain for both of them more burdens and grievance than ever they thought would come their way. But God's gifts are not wasted. We're not clear what this particular gift is that he's talking about. It seems to be some kind of leadership gift that was recognized in the role Timothy was given. It's open to you, Timothy, to live a life by which that flame will be fanned afresh. You are not powerless. Even if it seems to you, stuck in Ephesus, that the whole thing is falling apart, you are not powerless. You have a real capacity for change because God is at work in you. The Holy Spirit from God. And you have something you can do about that. And then in the same vein, in verse 7, we haven't got a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love, self-control. Now, Timothy was clearly a very nervous, twitchy, shy character. But the Spirit of God at work in him is a spirit of power. Now, just play with that word for a moment. Think of Paul in his prison. Think of Timothy looking after the Ephesians church, which must feel like it's falling apart. And both of them presumably could have named before God one or two powerful miracles they could have done with. Paul to be released. Timothy to turn into super bish. And of course, thanks be to God that he does grant the miracles of power. 
But here, given that the circumstances might lead any normal human being to give up in Rome, to give up in Ephesus, here, the power to which Paul directs Timothy throughout the letter is the power of stickability. At different points, he calls it endurance, steadiness, firmness, purity, gentleness, patience. These are the virtues of power that Jesus promised his followers in that upper room that we heard of. You are timid now. Yes, you're locked up in this little room and you don't want to go anywhere. But wait until the Holy Spirit comes to give you power and then you'll feel able to go outside that door. When we recognize how nearly the faith was going to go, simply go under as they huddled in that room and as Paul sat in his prison and as Timothy sat in Ephesus, those are pretty powerful virtues endurance and firmness and gentleness. And he says power, he also says, and love and self-control. Timothy is being opposed to his face. We know that. It would be easy for him to respond in anger and frustration. Paul says don't. The Spirit of God means love. It would be easy for him to respond with overreaction. Paul says, don't. The Spirit of God means self-control. Well, you may be a Timothy. Perhaps you've arrived new to Norwich with a new life in front of you and you're wondering about the real power that there is in that old faith that you've sort of inherited from your family. We're going into Freshers' Week, the week when lines and crowds of students enliven the atmosphere of our parish as they wend their way from pub to pub. Not so much because being drunk is wonderful in itself, I suspect. Not sure there should have been a laugh then, but we'll we'll gloss over that. More because it's how English people lose enough inhibition to get to know each other. You've come into a new world and you're wondering whether that old world has any reality. And when the challenge comes to you in the next weeks, is the gospel of Jesus Christ something you say you belong to or is it just too feeble a thing? And let's be clear, it does look like a feeble thing. After all, what's this? A a gathering of a few people to do weird things uh, in a weird place on a weird day. But Paul knew that it looked feeble. And Timothy knew that it looked feeble but they both trusted that God was at work fulfilling an ancient promise through his people, and they both trusted that God's Spirit was a real and active power to keep the truth of Jesus Christ alive and in front of the humankind, in front of them. Or you may be a Paul. You may have kept the faith, and you wonder how much time remains to you. It looks like the world is going to pot It may be that you've known your own family turn from the faith and you yourself wonder whether it's true. Trust in him still. There is a Holy Spirit of the living God who continues in power and love and self-control and there will be a new generation. More likely you're a bit of both. You'll spend part of life as a Timothy and part as a Paul all around you you will see what the world looks upon as the wreck of the Christian church. And you will need hope. 
And so what Paul writes, and we'll see this opened up over these next weeks, what Paul writes is a model for us. We inherit from the past a story of a God who countless generations ago determined a people for himself and left us the signs in bread and wine of how far he would go to save us. And we're taken into the future by a spirit of God who cannot have lost his power to fashion us in endurance and love and conviction. When we come to this rail or the rails on either side, we are staking all that we are on precisely our very emptiness, on our incapacity, in fact, to stand alone by ourselves against the world and its challenges. And we ask to be filled with these signs that mean confidence in God's purpose and power to go into his future. These men lived in hard times for the church. They lived under Nero. You and I live in hard times for the church. They endured to the end. They knew the power of God and the message of God in their mouths is why we're here. So may you know the power of God and so may I. And please, God, let our last words to this world not be either I've had 18 straight whiskies or I'm just bored with it all. Let's pray. Lord God, all around us, the world delights to let us know of reasons to be miserable, reasons to believe that you have vacated this planet and that you are no longer real if you ever were. As we encounter your word and the stories of saints and heroes, May we know the truth of the ancient calling and your future power. And may we stand in a renewed confidence in Jesus' name.